Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. We are mobilizing Houston to empower families and transform generations. We hope these conversations will give you a greater understanding of the issues facing our community and inspire you to find your place along the river. We have two guests today. Uh, Dr. Christopher Greeley is the chief of the Division of Public Health at Texas Children's Hospital. He's also the professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. We also have Diane Collin as the senior community initiatives coordinator in the public health division also at Texas Children's. Thank you guys so much for being with us today. I just want to kind of start off and by just setting the stage because Within foster care, within this system of child welfare, we don't often think about physical needs and Texas children's actually being a part of that whole system. And so I'd love to just start off by hearing a little bit about what is the foster care clinic? I know that's a recent development over the last couple of years. What do you what do you do there and how do you fit kind of in that ecosystem of the child welfare system? Sure. Thank you for inviting us. I'm thrilled to be here. So we have a clinical service, then we have a prevention service, our public health prevention service. The clinical service is uh, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, social workers who care for many kids who are suspected victims of abuse and neglect. Mm -hmm. And as part of that understanding, that spectrum is also kids who are in, in care and conservatorship and foster care, kinship care. And we recognize that there is great opportunity because the needs are so tremendous and that we felt like it was our calling to be able to say, if we have this vulnerable kids and mm-hmm. their families, that we should be able to care for the whole spectrum of them before, during, and after. And so we developed four or five years ago the idea of a foster care clinic, wanting to have it pretty comprehensive, wanting to try and begin to address many of the needs that the child has, but then broadly, the family, the bio family and the Mm -hmm. foster family, and if it's kinship, the kinship family, to help navigate the system, to help understand what the medical needs were, to help understand what the mental behavioral health needs, and then a lot of the social needs, the needs that families struggle with um, in a large system that they may be unfamiliar with. So we developed the foster care service to have a clinical arm and an Mm -hmm. outreach arm, educational arm, and we're building off of that. And the core is the medical care, the mental and behavioral care, and then moving out from that. Yeah, I feel I feel like there's you wouldn't necessarily think that there's a lot of nuance just by being in foster care. Right. But you guys have started a whole kind of clinic and, and um, initiative around specific foster care, you know, the challenges that they face, as you mentioned. I know for myself, being a nurse practitioner in community health, my first interaction with foster care was just by having patients and mm-hmm. recognizing that referrals were so important, um, making sure that they were getting the right types of resources and really seeing them holistically. It was so very important. So I certainly can see that from my perspective, but I don't know that the public generally Mm -hmm. sees that same type of nuance. Mm -hmm. Um, Diane, what is your role within the clinic, within this, um, the division? So my role is really around community education, outreach, um, just working with different um, agencies and different providers so that we can be more collaborative and Mm -hmm. support. What I really value about my position is the importance that Texas Children's has to 
um, really educate the community on childhood trauma um, because it's really there's so much research and um, research out there about the complexities of trauma and how the neuroscience behind that. And so a lot of my work is really just giving um, teachers organizations, just um, anybody that really is open to hearing that, just that foundational level Mm -hmm. of that neuroscience research, but also to how do you show up for these individuals and to these families? Because sometimes it's it's not just an hour here and an hour there. It's really showing up on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. And it's really not always easy. And so what we want to do is really be able to educate that community on what this looks like and how do we be better and how do we do better for these individuals and these families. Yeah, you're speaking our language. We we talk all the time about what happens to the brain. Uh, we've we've talked a, a lot on this podcast about the impact of trauma and the hope that comes with understanding that first mm-hmm. and then offering connection and relationship with services um, that can really help kids to heal. I know we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about just the neuroscience, how far we've come um, just in our in the culture and the science to see that there it really is hope for many of these kids who have experienced a lot of trauma. So right there with you for sure. And then helping the community show up. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone that can do really spend some time there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so grateful for it. Um, one of the things that you you mentioned was just prevention. Mm-hmm. We think of medicine as being reactive most of the time. Mm-hmm. We don't get involved until somebody comes in sick, right? And so typically we see medicine as being just reactive to the problem. How does Texas Children's work on that prevention side? What does that look like to kind of solve problems before they actually happen? Yeah. So, Well, Texas Children's as a whole does a lot uh, in terms of community engagement, having clinical presence throughout the greater Houston area, mm-hmm. College Station, Austin. For our prevention in this realm specifically, we have a full division of people who are public health trained. The focus really has been on at-risk families, early brain development, mm-hmm. bonding with the family, transition from pregnancy, birth, and the first year yeah. or two of life. Our focus has been really the early trajectory and developing programs and partnering with community partners to identify the needs that families may have, whether it's things like food, transportation, utilities, education, employment, Mm -hmm. tenant landlord, and being able to say, we want to help you with that too. Now, we may not be the person to help you, Mm -hmm. but we want to be part of the solution. We're not the solution, but we're part of the solution in a lot of this. And given the reach that Texas Children's and the Texas Pediatrics, uh, Texas Children's Pediatrics network of clinics has, mm-hmm. we want to be able to leverage that to say, we will be anywhere you are. And when we're there, we want to be able to help you for non-medical things as well, because many families struggle with non-medical challenges. Yeah. And, it's, and we think that this is an opportunity to leverage our ability to help on a lot of prevention aspects. So when families may be struggling or at risk of being reported for neglect or at risk of being reported for something uh, untoward, we want to be able to say, we'll be there. We'll help you. We'll we'll see if we can reverse some of the challenges families may have. Yeah. I mean, in the system, what we see often when we talk about, and we've talked about this on the podcast, the going upstream, when we Typically, what we see is not just really stable families on the side just throwing their kids into the water. We certainly see really difficult 
horrible things on the news. And those are those things, mm-hmm. unfortunately, do happen. But there are a vast majority of cases where there are families who are really kind of slowly sliding down into mm-hmm. the water and not getting the help that they need on the way down. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So what you're saying is one of the best things that Texas Children's can do is identify them first and then gather support. I love that you said um, we may not be the solution. Um, We talk about collaboration all the time and not just collaboration, but coordination. Mm -hmm. If there's organizations in the city that are doing really great work that we can point people to Mm -hmm. rather than try to do it all ourselves, that's a that's really building an ecosystem where kids can thrive. So we get healing. uh, Completely agree with that. We have care coordinators and their care coordination is not the medical care per se. Mm -hmm. It's the, okay, tell me what basic needs you have. You have diapers. Okay. I can connect you to somebody. You have educational needs. I can connect you to somebody. It is social care coordination. To me, that is where many families struggle. You know, the world is very complicated. People's lives get really complicated. And then you add a young little baby, it gets even more complicated. Mm -hmm. And the job is to say, not to be punitive, yeah. but to be therapeutic. How can we be helpful for those basic needs? Yeah. And so we don't, in a year, go back and say, God, I wish someone helped them with that. Mm-hmm. Like We'll say, yes, we'll help you now with that. And to me, that's been what we're trying to achieve. That's what within the division, within Texas Children's, we're trying to do is figure out the best way mm-hmm. to be out there to be helpful. Yeah, and, and being able to do that through kids all every kid has to go to a pediatrician hopefully they're getting to a pediatrician right Mm -hmm. so if if those people who are seeing them in those visits are able to have that sense of um just awareness of what the needs Mm -hmm. are and they're addressing them early we don't see the same compounding doesn't get addressed here it typically starts to compound over time so let's go back a little bit to the what we were talking about with trauma as well i know we we typically think of childhood trauma, we think of behaviors, which is a big part of it, belief systems, mental health, and we see that outward aspect in the behavioral side. Also, we know that the physical body can also be affected by developmental trauma. Can you speak to that aspect? I know it's something that we don't really think about as much, like how the body is more at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, How does the body respond physically to the impact of trauma? So I think it can be in a variety of ways, and that's what makes it difficult. It's mm-hmm. not as if there's one sign or symptom. It right. can be anything from delayed growth and delayed development. It can be emotional attachment. It also can be delayed. It can be something that the physical trauma may be uh, uh, healing, and there's rehabilitation of that. But then the other manifestations of trauma could be a year or two later. It could be a reaction to something that has happened. Diane has done a a ton of work in the space of how we begin to think about trauma in a broader way and the kinds of ways it shows up. A lot of it is behavioral. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is emotional. And a lot of it is dysregulation. And, you know, I would not want to overstep my bounds. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'd love to hear from you, Diane. No, I have to. Yes, absolutely. I think there is a lot of health outcomes and um, just even just tiredness, um, not able to sleep um, well at night or we stay up all night long because we're dysregulated. So we sleep during the day. Um, The educational challenges that come because I live in a moment and I live in a life where I'm always feeling a threat. And so I'm not able to access all parts of my brain and really develop those um, those 
neurons and really grow in that way and feel safe in that space. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we know from adverse childhood ex- experiences and those studies that we can have a long lifetime outcomes and that right. changes um, over the time throughout the lifespan. Yeah. I'd love to, th- to talk a little bit about, too, I know that this has been something that's been personal for you as well as an adoptive parent, um, how you've seen that not just in your work, um, but it's also what drives you um, in many ways. I'd love to hear kind of how you got into this and how that personal side of it kind of blends over into work and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, would you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I come from the hospital setting as a certified child life specialist where I support children through medical trauma, trying to prevent that and support them through that and worked in the community in a variety of other ways. But one of the things that was different for me is when I was working as a therapist, I work from an hour here and an hour there. And it was much different when you bring trauma into your home and it's with you 24-7. And I really started to see a difference of like um, somebody working with my uh, my son and and knowing that they thought they did a really great job and then seeing the reactions of my child after that intervention Mm -hmm. and how, oh, that could have been me thinking I was doing a really great job. And but I never saw that child after that intervention. I think, too, what really came down for me is the challenge it is it is to help these children feel safe. Mm-hmm. It's not it's a lot of work. It's not just, you know, I noticed for my husband and I, it we thought, OK, two months in, we're going to be really good. No, no, we really weren't. <laughs> we weren't good a year in and we weren't good two years in like and it is taking us three and a half years at this point to help him feel safe in our home, mm-hmm. for help him feel connected with us, that he can rely on us as a yeah. source um, and a consistent present in his life. And um, we still have ups and downs, but sure. I, I guess I didn't really appreciate the overall long-term consequences when we are when we have children mm-hmm. a part of a system that doesn't get it right. Yeah, and that uh, yeah, like you said, it it. You see that when you see it in your home, you experience it in your home. It was the same way, very similar, but also very different scenario with as a foster parent, um, you do an adoptive parent, you see it in your home. You start to really think through and and develop more compassion, I think, too, for the, the mm-hmm. families that you're serving, both on the foster and adoptive parent and on the biological side mm-hmm. of things, because you, we know that it's often generational, that there's it's not just trauma that happens to child, but it's likely there's been trauma happening with parents. So just that whole aspect of what happens when we all collectively understand what trauma does, mm-hmm. um, both to our brain, to our body, um, and then also just refusing to fall into despair, yeah. but moving forward with hope and letting that drive us mm-hmm. into the work that we're doing, right? Yeah. I think my biggest takeaway is that these children truly need a family. They Mm -hmm. need people who are going to show up for them every day. The parents of these children need a community that is going to support them, have their backs, um, even when it's not easy and it looks messy. Yeah. Um, And that's what's so important. And it's important we all come together as a community. Yeah. Yeah, we all have a role that we can play, even if mm-hmm. it may be being an actual physician or working in a hospital, mm-hmm. working on those medical needs. Um, but not being that, there's always a role to play just yeah. by showing up for somebody. Absolutely. Yeah, Diane's been really, I think, ins- 
inspirational for a lot of us to get dislodged from the medical visit perspective Mm -hmm. of our role. And it's not just that we provide medical visits. We have to be part of this larger spectrum and that the care is a process. It's not a visit. Mm -hmm. And that these visits are nodes along that process and that some become more important at certain times, some later, some may not be important at all, but that it's a process. And I think as a physician, we have the sense of, I'm going to swoop in and have this visit and fix it and it'll all be fine. Somewhat hyperbolic, (laughs) but also somewhat real. And I think that has been really helpful for us in terms of anchoring our understanding of what our Mm -hmm. role is and what our purpose and what we're trying to achieve. So as we build more behavioral health for specifically for kids in foster care, recognizing that they're part of this process, they're not just a visit. And I think that's been really helpful for us. That's got to be extremely challenging, too, because I know for myself, there's a, you know, a kid has strep throat, you prescribe them antibiotics and we're done. Right. There's a problem. You solve it. There's a treatment. There's certainly chronic illness and there's always a, you know, a struggle, a longer term perspective on that. But I've also watched families really kind of wanting the magic bullet when it comes to trauma. Can we just medicate this? And sometimes that's helpful. But can we just fix it? And that's one of the biggest challenge, I think, in this field is it takes so long to undo those things. We mm-hmm. can move in, in dramatic levels of healing, but it takes so much of us in the process. It's why, like you said, we have to have an entire community, not just the family, but an actual community around that family. Mm-hmm. It, we can't do it any other way, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much hope in that, but it is certainly um, a challenge. I want to shift a little bit because one of the things when I first, I think a couple of years ago, we mm-hmm. first had a conversation. One of the things I really never had thought about is is just medical records for kids who are so transient in foster care. I saw just a lot of um, potential because Texas Children's, you have, there's so many clinics all around. It's a large system in Houston. How are, as Texas Children's in the clinic, really kind of working to address that issue that many of us just never even thought about would be a challenge? I think that was one of our earliest conversations. And mm-hmm. the the term that I use is information stewardship. It's this idea of this child has a lot of information, but it's erased when they transition. Many times CPS doesn't get the requisite information. And so many foster families are, are uh, caring for a kid in which, in theory, no one really knows much about. So we made that part of what our clinical enterprise was, was to be able to be information stewards, be a holding house, a clearing house for as much information about that child as possible, yeah. whether it's social information, whether it's the legal information, whether it's the biological information. And one of the many great things about Texas Children's Hospital is that all of the hospitals and all of the clinics have the same electronic record. Mm-hmm. So if you go and have a visit in orthopedics, your primary care doctor, if it's a TCP pediatrician has that information. So all of the information that we're gathering in the foster care service is available with the appropriate checks and balances is available for any foster parent or bio parent. So that child has a a persistent history. And if there's a transition of placements, Mm -hmm. that information doesn't get erased. It's still there. And then to us, that was really one of the most critical things. And we learned as we started that 
the same way you did. We would get kids and we'd say, so what's the family history? And no one would know. And we'd say, okay, I guess we're going to have to go find it. And we would then say, let's put it in a place. It will be there for the child whenever they need it. Mm -hmm. And to us, that was really one of the critical things that was like, oh, so it's not just the medical care that we need to do. We need to think about the system as well. Yeah. And how this fits into, into that system. Do you work also with other providers outside of the Texas children's system as much as you can to try and, you know, I assume getting those records when they come into or giving them when they go out of the system. How does that look if, if it's work, if you're working with a provider outside? Yeah. So we, we get all the appropriate referrals. We get all Mm -hmm. the appropriate consent forms. And then we basically march backwards. Sometimes we march forwards if it's a younger kid. Which hospital were you born in? Let's get the hospital records. Because even if mom or dad is not continuing to care for the child and it's a foster parent, they may not know. But we could get that hospital record that has all the family history Mm -hmm. and all the medical history and put that into the child's records. And so we go through the process of finding what are the most important pieces of information that we have. And then once we are able to look at it, what are the most important piece of information that we don't have? And then where can yeah. we find that? Some of it is through CPS. Some of it is through their other hospital providers. Um, some of it are other clinics. And so it sometimes is putting a puzzle together. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we start with the basics, the birth hospital and where was the child born yeah. and who were their parents and what were their history? Because that is something we want that child to also have, to know what their family history was. If they're not going back to a biological family, we want them to at least have that available Mm -hmm. to them. That's so so interesting. What would you say are the biggest challenges that the kids and families that you're currently serving facing? Well, I I think, and hear what Diane thinks, but my my sense is much like many, of the kids not in foster care, mental and behavioral health is really a tremendous issue. And it's not really as much an issue of assessments and identification, but therapy is really hard, especially if the therapy is months or years long. Mm -hmm. It's really hard from a uh, workforce perspective, there's not enough people available. And yeah. I think, you know, Texas Children's has done a really amazing job of trying to scale up to meet mm-hmm. the challenge. And I th- think we are really getting to the point where we can do that. But I think the challenge is not just the kids in foster care, it's broad. So I think there's a tsunami of yeah. mental and behavioral health needs that. As is that city, coming from COVID? Or where, where do you think that that's coming from? Is that just coming out of, yeah. is it multifaceted, I assume? It's multifaceted. We we saw an increase of mental and behavioral health diagnoses and an uptick in hospitalization starting 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. It really had, t- had really exploded because of COVID or coincidentally with COVID, uh, I think because of COVID. Uh, and, you know, the issue of, of the emergency capacity Mm -hmm. of the rates of suicide ideation, suicide attempts, unfortunately successful suicide, uh, has just gotten really tremendously, Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, it's hard to ignore. And it's not a a Texas thing, it's a national thing. And it's that to us, I think we are, you know, as a city having, we don't have enough capacity for therapy. Uh, I think 
what I want to do or what I think is the, a strategy is, yes, we need more beds and yes, we need more, but we also need more prevention. We need yep. more therapy for families. We need things. I'm right. a big upstream person. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't want to uh, say that we should just get a lot of therapists, which of course we need, but we also need to start thinking about, okay, this is not going away. Right. How do we start looking at some of the root causes? I don't know what yeah, you would. That's good. Yeah, I agree. I think um, definitely the mental um, health challenge right now is taking a lot of focus. Mm-hmm. But specifically in that challenge for children with foster care is that we don't have enough prior providers that really have the strong clinical training on trauma. Yeah. You know, one thing that impressed me is when I became a uh, foster adoptive parent, um, I was told I am, I'm not the therapist, but that, but when I realized it is these explosions and these behaviors are not happening in, in the hour of therapy, they're happening at home. Mm-hmm. And I have to be ready to navigate those and have those really hard questions. And so it really comes down to really giving parents the education, yeah. the tools to be able to navigate these whether your child has been through trauma or not, mm-hmm. I mean, us parents really need the resources, the support of each other to just have a community that feels supportive yeah. and understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I really want to work on um, is we're, we're really working on at Texas Children's is really helping giving families those true authentic resources that come from other parents who've been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they can say, oh, hey, wow, this is what I went through. So it's really from a parent to parent perspective, because that's yeah. really we learn from those with lived experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what would you say is the if you were just kind of the flip side of that, we talked about biggest challenges. What are the things that keep you keep you going every day, despite all of the challenges that you're seeing, despite the trauma that you're really trying to push back on? What inspires you? Is it a specific story or glimpse of hope? Um, what keeps you going? What I love when I give out trainings after every training, somebody comes up to me and says, if I had known what I now know, I would have supported this child differently, Mm -hmm. whether it was a foster parent, whether it was a teacher, whether it was a school counselor. And I think that's, what's really exciting is like, yeah, they may have not done maybe the best thing that they could have for that child, but now they ha- are looking at children through a different lens and saying, oh, wow, this behavior wasn't because they were trying to be difficult in my classroom. This behavior came here because they were going through something bigger. And, yeah. and I just hope that as people become more educated and more aware of those challenges and see children authentically for who they are, um, that gives me hope that maybe we can see differences in the system. Yeah. And that gives us a glimpse of what you said, Dr. Greeley, of prevention. And, you know, that is a form of prevention if we can help people earlier to see that maybe there's more to this and that their behavior isn't the actual, it's not who they are. It's just where many times where they've come from or what they've experienced. Mm -hmm. Then we get to not go so far downstream with the way that we interact and compound that trauma, but we can cut it off early. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What would you say, Dr. Greeley? I say, um, I get to work with people like Diane keeps me going. It, the recognition that we have a uh, a mighty band of people who realize that this is really sort of important and 
there is growing recognition of things like trauma, growing recognition of things like needing therapy, needing ongoing care, as opposed to, I think, historically medicalizing it where, uh, as we all know, many kids in foster care get a lot of medications. And we, as an academic institution, have done a bunch of research and realized that a lot of it is overprescribed and unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me is really nice to see that we can be thoughtful and we can say we have a mighty band of people who want to make sure these kids get what they need and do it in a way that is uh, evidence-based, that is is uh, engaged with the community mm -hmm. and providing what families need. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, it would be hard to say that Houston had a lot of people that were working in this space that were would speak that language. I think now we have that, and I think they're seeing evidence of that pop up other places. And that's really reassuring that this isn't just a voice in the wilderness. Yeah, I don't think that Houston lacks many resources. There are some, but living in a place like Houston, we don't really lack a lot of resources. We don't, families can't often access the mm -hmm. resources. But we live in a city um, that has a whole lot of things to offer, a whole lot of people doing a lot of great work. Um, I'm grateful for Texas Children's um, being a part of that. I think it's a having a staple um, medical institution like Texas Children's that is world renowned. Um, I love I used to work there, so I, I <laughs> am biased um, and I've seen it firsthand um, and the beauty that comes from um, working in an institution like that with brilliant, brilliant people who care for kids every day. So. I'm grateful for you taking the time to just to have this conversation um, and for doing the work that um, you do every day. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for your time. Of course. To those listening, we hope these conversations have inspired you to find your place along the river. And we welcome you to join us in bringing hope and renewal to the city of Houston. If you'd like more information on how to get involved, please visit riversideproject.org and submit a contact form. We'll see you next time.